those of you who've been with us, uh, we did a study in First and Second Timothy, uh, and we finished those epistles. Those are two books that are known as in the New Testament as pastoral epistles. There's a third book that is known as the pastoral that is epistle that's included with First and Second Timothy. And that is the book of Titus. So this morning, if you open up your Bibles to Titus, uh, we'll do a study, a chapter-by-chapter and verse-by-verse study in Titus. Again, the third book uh, of the New Testament, which is included in the pastoral epistles. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Dennis will get you a Bible there in the back because we want you to follow along with us as we study Titus chapter 1 this morning. So Titus, you'll find right after 2 Timothy. And uh, we're going to start that new book here this morning. So we're in for a real treat over the next couple of weeks. A wonderful, wonderful book. Now, as we conclude the book of Acts, uh, you know that Paul arrives in Rome. And the reason that he is there in Rome is because uh, he had been on a series of trials that led him to be in Rome where he's uh, going to face Caesar Nero eventually. But before Paul is going to face Caesar Nero, he's under house arrest for two years waiting to, to go and appear before the emperor of Rome. The book of Acts doesn't talk about those two years that Paul is under house arrest, but we see what was the thoughts and, and, and um, some of the things that Paul went through in that house imprisonment as he would write the prison epistles of Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians and Philippians there in those two years that he was in his first imprisonment in Rome, which took place in the years 61 and 62 AD. Paul would eventually face Caesar Nero. He would be released, and he was pretty much free to travel um, from about 63 to 66 AD. And in those years that he's traveling around, he's with two young disciples of his. One of them is Timothy. And what he would do is he would take Timothy and they would go to the city of Ephesus. And Paul would say, Timothy, I'm going to leave you here in Ephesus so you can pastor the church here. And that's what we discussed quite extensively as we looked at this summer, First and Second Timothy, as we did a verse-by-verse study in those two uh, epistles. Paul, in that time frame as well, would take Titus, another young disciple of his, and they would go to the island of Crete. And there Paul would leave Titus in Crete. And in that time frame as well, we see Paul would write a letter to Timothy, and he would also write a letter to Titus, who was pastoring the church at Crete, and he would address a lot of things pertaining to church conduct and and for them to continue to teach the Word of God and for them to be an example to the believers. And so we saw that very clearly in, in, in Timothy's epistles. We're going to see that very clearly here in this epistle of Titus. It would be then after that, that Paul would be rearrested as persecution began there in the Roman Empire, as Caesar Nero began to heavily persecute the Christians. He would be rearrested, brought back to Rome. This time he's thrown into a dungeon, a very dark and, and ugly place, where the orders would come down eventually for him to be executed, beheaded for his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so last week, as we finished. 2 Timothy chapter 4, those were the last words that we have recorded in the New Testament of Paul the Apostle as he says, My departure is at hand, and I have fought the good fight, and I have finished my race, and I have kept the faith. And so we looked at that, but this morning we want to look at Titus. Again, Titus going to Crete with Paul, and Crete is an island of the Mediterranean Sea about 140 miles long. It's 35 miles wide. 
It's an island that's very mountainous, and in Paul's day, it had a fairly large population. Paul would travel there, leave Titus there in Crete, and then eventually he would write this letter to Titus, giving him instructions about how he is to run the church and also exhortation in his own walk and and being one that is continuing in the truth of God's word and then as you minister, Titus, teach God's word. And so just as we talked about how Timothy would have to confront those in the Ephesian church that were corrupt and false, Again, something that we saw very clearly as we went through First and Second Timothy, it would not be easy for young Timothy. At the same time, Titus up in Crete would have the same challenges. You see, the Cretans in Paul's day did not have a good reputation. They were known as a people that were very problematic and very difficult to get along with. They had a reputation of being liars, of being lazy, and being very mean. So the people also were also... Um, very deep in the Greek mythology. So Titus definitely is going to have his work cut out for him as he ministers up there in Crete. We know some personal notes about Titus. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, we know Titus was a Gentile convert. He would sometimes travel with Paul as Paul went out throughout the region ministering. We know that he would join Paul as Paul and in, in, in Barnabas And some of the boys from Antioch would go down to Jerusalem, and they would meet with the apostles and the elders, the church elders there in Jerusalem, in what was called the Jerusalem Council. And in that meeting that we read about in Acts chapter 15, we see that uh, from the New Testament that Titus would be with them at that point. And when you really think about it, it was very brave for Titus to be there at the Jerusalem Council. Because as you read Acts chapter 15, what was the main issue that they were discussing there as they gathered in Jerusalem? The main issue was, should Gentiles be circumcised in order to be saved? So I'm sure Titus, being a Gentile, was a bit anxious on what the outcome of that meeting was going to be. And of course, the outcome was the affirming of the Jews and Gentiles alike coming to salvation by their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. So as we continue to look at Titus' life, we also know, and as we don't know a whole lot about Titus, not as much as we do about, as we did about Timothy, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that Titus, he wasn't in the ministry just because Paul talked him into it, or he felt obligated to Paul, but rather he was excited and earnest to minister. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, Paul wrote this, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. So Titus would go to Corinth to help minister to them. He went of his own accord and with earnest, and he would bring comfort to them as well as to Paul personally. And so Titus was this young guy that... You just love to have around in ministry. He was a great help uh, to the brethren and to Paul, to the churches. And so we're going to talk more about Titus personally as we go through this epistle as some things are brought up that I think you'll find of interest about Titus. But let's begin to look at the book of Titus. Verse 1, we read, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Of course, Paul, in his letters, would oftentimes call himself a bondservant. He says, I'm a servant of God. And indeed, he was. And as 
the last few months, we've been looking at some of these Pauline epistles, not only his letters to the pastors, but his letters to the churches as well. We see that Paul indeed was a servant. His ministry did not bring him fame. His ministry did not bring him fortune. His ministry did bring him suffering. He would suffer for the gospel's sake, and Paul went through much affliction and difficulties, but he always remembered that he was a servant first, and that service to the Lord would include him being an apostle, which means sent out one. He was sent out of God, why? Well, verse 1, according to the faith of God's elect, or in other words, God was using Paul to call out a people for himself. People were needing to hear the good news of the gospel, just as people today need to hear the gospel message, bringing sinners to salvation. The gospel message is that we have all sinned, that we need a Savior, and that Savior that we can turn to, the only Savior of the world is Jesus Christ, who came as God was manifested in the flesh. He came, Jesus, and he would live a perfect life. He would go to the cross at Calvary where he bore our sins upon himself, and dying for our sins, he would then, after his death on the cross, be put into a tomb. He would rise again after three days, and he's alive sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And we who come to him realizing that we need forgiveness, forgiveness is found as we receive him into our hearts as Lord and Savior. That's the simple gospel message. Salvation is a free gift from God, and we are saved by grace through faith, faith in Jesus Christ alone. So Paul was given that gospel message to others as he went throughout the empire, as he was sent to the Gentiles. And then also we see that Paul was sent out not only to preach the gospel and give the gospel message, but secondly, to teach them the truth which is conducted to godly living. Paul never separated the two. Yes, we are saved by grace, but also God has called you to live godly. In other words, Paul's ministry was aimed at both the salvation and sanctification of God's people. Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we may not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God, and you are witnesses, and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believed. And so Paul was one that not only gave the truth, but he lived the truth as well. And as you know the truth of God's word, he reminds us that the truth which accords and produces godliness in your life. In other words, as you receive God's word, as you receive it into your heart, it changes you. As you yield to God's word, it produces God-likeness in your life. In verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Interesting. Before time or history or the human race began, God has established a plan for salvation. The hope of eternal life is something God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In eternity past, God made a way of salvation for mankind to spend eternity future with him. Now that plan is manifested in his time to others by the preaching of the gospel. And Paul says the preaching of the gospel message is entrusted to me and would say that, that I go to preach the gospel and also to teach others how to live godly. 
as he talks about the plan of salvation. And we also are to go into all the world, as Jesus said, to preach the gospel to every creature. And then verse 4, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. When Paul says that Titus was his true son in our common faith, it could be indicating that Titus was brought to the faith through the preaching of Paul the Apostle. And it, it may be that is kind of what the indication is as you follow the flow of Paul in this salutation. Hey, I was called to be an apostle, to preach the gospel, the truth of the, live, of, of the gospel and living godly, and those who accept the gospel being saved, having the hope of eternal life, which God promised before time began. And this gospel message was committed to me by God. And Titus, you're a true son in the faith, as you have heard the gospel and as you have received it. So grace, mercy, and, and peace be with you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Now a couple things I want us to note here on this verse. When Paul writes to the churches in the other letters that we see in the New Testament, when he writes to the saints, he would write his usual greeting to them of grace and peace. He would say grace and peace to you at the church of Corinth or the church of Ephesus or the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you. And it's always in that order, isn't it? Because you can never have the peace of God until you experience the grace of God. You can never have the peace of God until you experience the grace of God. But I've noticed something in these pastoral epistles. He adds something here. He adds mercy. He says to them, grace, mercy, and peace. Now, why does he do that? I'm not really sure. Except it might be that we pastors, we really need God's grace in our lives. And the second thing that I'd like to note here is notice in the previous verse, verse 3, God our Savior. And then in verse 4, Jesus Christ our Savior. Make sure you, that you use that verse, or it can be one of the verses that you can use when those who come knocking on your door, perhaps the Jehovah Witnesses, or perhaps the Mormon missionaries, or maybe those that you might talk to of the New Age philosophy that believe in, you know, a Christ consciousness, but... You know, Jesus was just a good teacher, a good guru. Anyone who denies the deity of Jesus Christ, you can point them these verses. And you see here that Paul is going to continue to use that term Savior. God our Savior and Jesus Christ our Savior interchangeably in the first two members of the Godhead Trinity. You see, the Mormons will come along and say, well, Jesus, he's Savior. Is he God? No, he's not God. You know, he, he's created. He's the Son of God. Is he equal with God? Is he the creator? No, he was created. And you can show them that as scripture says, there is one God, God is Savior, and who else is Savior? Jesus Christ. Putting them on equal ground. And so it's a good verse to remember. Also, we're going to see that Paul is going to do this in this epistle in chapter 2, verses 10 and verse 13, and also in chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. And now chapter, or verse 5 of chapter 1 for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, there is speculation among Bible scholars on exactly how the church of Crete started. One line of thought among Bible scholars is that when the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples in the upper room there on the day of Pentecost, we read about that in Acts chapter 2. The disciples are in the upper room. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues the praises of God. As they spoke in tongues, you got, the people heard them speaking in tongues. 
the native languages from where they came from. Remember, people were coming not only from all over Israel at the time of Pentecost to celebrate that feast, but they had come from all over the known empire, from all the other nations. And as they were speaking in tongues, those Galileans, they were saying, hey, how is it that we hear our native tongue being spoken as they are speaking the praises of God? We know from verse 11 of chapter 2 of Acts that there were men from Crete that are listed among those who heard the praises of God in their own tongue. And so it very well could be that those who would then hear the message of salvation, as Peter would stand up, wouldn't he, in Acts chapter 2, he would say, as they were saying, how can this be so? They must be drunk. And Peter says, listen, it's early in the morning. They're not drunk. This is that which is spoken of prophet to Joel. And so he gives that explanation biblically for what the move of the Spirit, what was happening as the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then Peter went on as he stood up and talked to the multitude there, gave the gospel message, and what happened? 3,000 got saved, didn't they? And so it could be that some of the men from Crete that were there went back to that island and they were Christians, and they began to spread the gospel message there. So Paul, hearing of the state of the church, hey, they need some maturity. They need somebody to go there and, and, and pastor the church there in Crete and begin to appoint elders in every city because there are a number of cities that were on that island. So Titus, come along. We're going to go up there, and we need to, to deal with the situation that is up there. That is one way that the church may have gotten started. Another line of thought is simply that Paul and Titus, after Timothy was left in Ephesus, that they would go on to Crete, and they had a successful evangelistic uh, ministry that was going on. So Paul says, listen, people are getting saved as they hear the gospel. So Titus, I'm leaving you here to disciple and teach and set in order the things that are lacking, and for you to appoint elders, as Paul would eventually write to Titus, overseers. So on this island the elders may be established in all the cities and and you may establish that which is lacking and so now we're going to see that Paul's going to give him as he did with Timothy the qualification of elders and notice Paul says here Titus you appoint the elders Titus you appoint the elders the overseers the shepherds the pastors they are are not to be chosen by popular vote Unfortunately, that happens in many churches. That it, time of the year comes where, well, we've got to vote in elders for a year or for two years. And so an elder is voted in by popular vote. Or perhaps he gets chosen through his own self-promotion. It was Timothy's responsibility, as we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It was Titus' responsibility, as we see here in chapter 1 of his book, to look for men of the kind of character and maturity and integrity that is described to us in the following verses. Titus, you appoint these bishops, these elders, overseers, pastors, these shepherds. Here are the qualifications that you are to look for. The problem is, is when a church begins to have a vote, they may vote in the most popular person, but they may not be you know, spiritually mature for that office or that position of being an elder. They may not fit the qualifications that are described to us in the scriptures in the New Testament. It, it reminds me of what's being said here of what was said to Moses. You recall Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. They come to the mountain of God. And it would be Jethro, 
Moses' father-in-law, that would come and visit Moses there in chapter 18 of Exodus. And we see that Jethro was praising God for what he had done in freeing you know, Moses and the children of Israel and his wonderful works. And so they have a, a great reunion. And then all of a sudden Jethro noticed something. The next day, here is Moses up from early in the morning to late at night judging the people. I mean, Moses had a church of two and a half million people. It's a lot of people. So the people were coming to receive counsel and instruction from Moses. And Jethro saw that and he said, listen, Moses, this isn't good. This is not good. You're going to burn yourself out if you continue to do that. So listen, this is what you do. You teach the people the statutes, the laws, and show them the way. Show them the way in which they are to walk and the workings they must do. And then you select Moses from the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place them as rulers over thousands, rulers over hundreds, rulers over fifties, rulers over ten. In other words, Moses, you select the leadership. Do you see the pattern if you've been with us? Moses, you teach them. Teach them the law and statutes. You show them how they are to live in a godly way. Timothy, make sure that you're teaching the word of God. Guard the word. Hold fast to it. Some 25 times in First and Second Timothy, he's told to do that. And Timothy, you be an example to the believers. Not just teaching them, but also you are to be one that is to be living godly. And then you select leadership. So we see that flow. And, and in Second Timothy chapter 3, Timothy, be diligent to present yourself a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we see that, that common denominator in the scripture. And so Titus and Timothy, here are the qualifications as you do select elders, as we will see here in verses 6 through 9. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast a faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So the list of qualifications, very similar to what we looked at carefully in First Timothy chapter 3. We're looking for an elder or a bishop. That word bishop means overseer. Um, you can use the word pastor, shepherd. All those words are interchangeable. Timothy you, or Titus, you look for one who is blameless. He didn't say you look for one who is perfect because we could all sit down. We'd all be disqualified. There's only one that lived a perfect life, and that was Jesus Christ. But he does say that he is to be blameless. What does he mean by that? That is, as you go down the rest of these requirements that we read here in these verses, that is, he is blameless. No man can come with an open charge and say that man is disqualified from being an overseer and an elder because they're greedy for money or they're violent. They're going around punching people out, you know, in their congregation or their house is not in order and it's a mess in their home. They are to be blameless. In other words, they are to match these qualifications and, and characteristics of what is listed here, and there's no open charge of, of not being moral or desiring to live right for the Lord, 
Um, there's no open charge of being uh, disobedient to what God's word says here and how they are to live and how they conduct their lives and having their homes in order. So a bishop, an elder, must be uh, blameless. And again, I want to remind you that as we go through this list, you may be sitting here going, well, I'm not going to be an elder. I, I have no desire to be an overseer. These are good qualifications. These are good things for all of us to look at and to have in our lives as we desire to grow godly in Christ Jesus, isn't it? I mean, these are things that we want to have in our lives and displayed in our lives. So first of all, a bishop must be blameless. How? He is to be the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. In other words, he doesn't have children that are rebellious, that are out of control that are wild, that are disobedient. And Paul had said in 1 Timothy chapter 3 concerning this, in this qualification that an overseer must rule over his household, having his children in submission, because if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how is he going to be able to rule over the house of God? As a pastor, I know that ministry must be established at my home before I can have any credibility in the church. And I tell men who want to be leaders in the church or desire to be an overseer of a ministry, whatever it is, that ministry begins at home. And if he cannot keep this balance at home, having a good and healthy and strong marriage in the Lord, giving himself wholeheartedly to his wife, raising his children in the ways of the Lord and bringing order and discipline, then he can't do the ministry in the church. And understand, that is not a word of condemnation at all. Please don't take it as that. That's just a word of honest evaluation. Men, you want to minister? Then you make sure that your home is squared away. Whatever you want to do in ministry here, you first do it at home. You want to lead worship? then you lead your family in worship. You want to teach Bible study? Then you be teaching your children so that they are grounded and walking in the ways of the Lord. So before I can do ministry here, ministry first has to be established in my home with my children. In verse 7, again, a bishop must be blameless. Notice Paul uses the word elder in verse 5, now bishop in verse 7. And again, those words being interchangeable, both must be blameless. He must be a, a steward of God. Now, what was a steward? A steward is one that was given responsibilities to take care and to tend to and to care for the master's possessions, for the things that were in the master's house. A steward was a servant. A minister of God, listen, a minister of God must never, never forget that he is a servant of God. It is something, as I mentioned previously, that Paul never forgot. He would always write Paul a bondservant of God, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. As an overseer of this church, of this ministry, as an overseer in my home, and as many of you are overseers of your homes, the Lord has entrusted with us some awesome responsibilities and duties and caring for the people that he's given to us to minister to, to feed them, to give them the word of God to guard them and protect them and to protect our homes and for me to guard here in the church that things of the world don't come in and pollute the church because it can happen so easy today. 
We are to be good stewards of what God has given to us, whether it's in the church or with our family, and never take for granted what God has blessed you with and who God has blessed you with, who has given to you to minister to and to serve and to be a good steward of the things that God has entrusted you with. And Paul resumes his list with five vices which must not characterize an overseer. He must not be self-willed. A person who is self-willed is disqualified from leadership. They show their self-willed nature in arrogance and stubbornness and proud self-focus. There's no room in the ministry for those things. He must not be quick-tempered, that is, quick to anger and flying off the handle. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17 tells us that a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Proverbs 14 goes on to tell us that he who is slow to anger has great understanding. Then Paul says that an elder is not to be given to wine, not violent. You think that's a given, but of course there have been some cases, and I've even known those who are overseers or elders or pastors or whatever that had a violent tendency. Maybe it might involve spousal abuse or whatever it might be. And then they expect to be behind the pulpit. It says you're disqualified if you're violent. An elder or overseer or bishop must not be greedy for money, how that's a word for us today. We talk quite extensively about that in First and Second Timothy and even on Wednesday nights in our study of Jeremiah. It was something that Timothy had to deal with. As Paul says, you need to deal with those who are coming along, Timothy, and they're saying that godliness is a means of gain, financial gain. Jeremiah was dealing with those shepherds that did not have a heart after God, those false shepherds that were leading the people, as we have seen in Jeremiah, into covetousness. They were leading the people into a prosperity-type message and how the church today is infiltrated with those who bring a prosperity gospel on the TV set behind the pulpits and, and appealing to people's lust and, and people not being grounded in the Word of God, being greedy for money, Huge, huge, you know, salaries they receive and, and the wealth and the luxury and all of this. And here Paul says he must not be greedy for money. It might be translated pursuing dishonest gain. Verse 8, an elder must be hospitable. And I believe that what really this entails with a pastor is more than having people over for dinner. You see, there's something that can happen in the church. And that is particularly in our nation, we measure success of a ministry by how big it is. And I don't think that there's any pastor that doesn't desire for the church to grow. But for some, that's really their motivation, to see how big the church can grow. So the church does grow. And, and God can pour out his grace. And, and, and there can be a, even a movement of God's Holy Spirit that is wonderful, but Something can happen if you get focused on, oh, look at my church growing and all this. You start adding staff. And so the staff, those pastors are going to deal with the people. Those pastors are going to always be with the people. And what can happen is I only show up as a senior pastor to do the teaching. I'll show up when it's time for me to teach. But in the meantime, I'll be up in my office with the door closed. And unfortunately, that can happen. And I pray that that doesn't happen, and I pray, you know, no matter what happens with this ministry, as God continues to grow it, and we're not a huge church by any means, 
But being hospitable means that you're not putting yourself above the people. It means that you are one that is available to the people, that you like being with the people, in other words. That you're there with them. That's what's being hospitable, as they need prayer to talk with them. And I'll tell you what, I love being here. I love being here in this church. I love being here on Sundays. I always have a hard time sleeping on Saturday night. And you know why? Because I look forward to Sunday morning. I look forward to being here with you because you're my family and to be able to fellowship. And I know even, you know, today, the end of August, as things are light today and, and, and um, you know, as we go to two services, even it's, it's hard to get to everybody, even on a light attendance like what it might be this morning. But I always try to make sure in my ministry that I'm there before everybody else is there, that I'm the last one to leave on Sunday morning, that my door is open during the week, that I'm available for you, that my phone number is listed for you to call. There are many pastors that won't put in their phone numbers, and I know there's different reasons, but I want to be available, hospitable, because this is a hospital, all right? It's a hospital for people that are hurting and people who need to be prayed for and ministered to. So that's my desire, is to always, no matter what, if the Lord gives me you know, a few people, to make sure that they are fed and loved, if he gives us a lot of people to continue that philosophy. And I'll tell you what, I learned that from Pastor Chuck. Pastor Chuck Smith, who had, you know, one of the largest churches, who has one of the largest churches in North America. And I've seen him to where he will be the last one that is standing there at the back door when thousands of people are going through There are many pastors that have large church, and they come in the back door, and they teach, and then they leave, and they go. They don't want to be bothered with the people. So he must be hospitable. And, and, and he goes on, and, and, and he talks about um, an elder is to be a lover of what is good, be sober-minded. That is, he's able to think clearly and with clarity. He must be just, holy, and self-controlled. To be just means that he's right towards men. To be holy means that he's right towards God. To be self-controlled means he's right towards himself. And in verse 9, an elder, a pastor, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Not only must an overseer meet moral and spiritual requirements in his own personal life, but he also must be a man of the word. He must be one that understands it, and he must be one that is teaching it. And we've talked about this again quite extensively as we went through First and Second Timothy. And here Titus is being reminded of the same thing. He is one that needs to be handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. You are to be diligent to study the word, correctly handle the word, Titus. As an elder, as you do that, you are to give the word to others, encourage them by giving them the word of God, and then refute those who oppose it. In verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert, subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Titus, I want you to set things in order. Here, I want you to appoint elders. Here are the qualifications of an elder. And now as we conclude chapter 1 here, we see that here's the task of an elder. You're going to have to confront those who are insubordinate or that is rebellious, those who are idle talkers, that is, they like to shoot their mouths off. 
with vain and worthless babbles. They like to gossip. They like to stir up trouble. And then thirdly, those who like to deceive. And they're especially those of the circumcision. In other words, Titus and Crete would have to face a Jewish element in whom these characteristics stood out. And they would be ones that would emphasize the rituals and the rules and the law and that your righteousness before God is going to be dependent on keeping the law and the rituals and the regulations. And the way to confront them, Titus, is giving them sound teaching. They must be stopped because they're doing a lot of damage to whole families of the congregation, and they're only interested in dishonest gain. In verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Just as Timothy was having to deal with difficult people, so would Titus. And here Paul writes, Cretans are known as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Even one of their own prophets, or it may be more correctly translated, one of their own poets said this of them. And Paul says, it's true. You know, Paul wasn't very politically correct, was he? He was very direct, though. And he's being very direct here. And there's an important point here. Not that you go around telling people that they're lazy and you're a glutton and evil and all this other stuff. But the point here is that because Paul knew of the generally hardened character of the people on the island of Crete, you're going to have to deal with them, Titus, very directly. You're going to have to rebuke them sharply so they can be sound in the faith. And sometimes we need to do that as well as Christians. It doesn't mean that we're mean. It doesn't mean that we're all harsh and yelling at people. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So you do it in patience as you bring correction. You do it in humility. You do it in gentleness. But you do bring correction as you point out the word of God. And whenever you bring correction or rebuke to somebody, you point them to the word of God. That is the key. But there are times where you have to do it directly. And I know that's not always fun, is it? But we have a responsibility to do that as Christians. And sometimes as Christians, we don't want to do that. We want to sweep things under the rug, or we want to beat around the bush, or we don't want to deal with it. When God has told us that the way that we can help others, that they can be sound in the faith, as Timothy was told, as you recall, that here's the word of God, inspired by God, and it is profitable for what? For correction, for reproach, for instruction in righteousness, that the, you may be complete or mature and equipped for every good work. The way that we're going to help people is not just sweeping things aside. When we see as they come to us and say this and that, murmur and complain in the situation they're in, and you see clearly that they need a word of correction from God's word, give it to them directly. You don't have to be in their face. You don't have to be all harsh. You don't have to be pointing your finger at them, but say, you know what, I love you enough to where this is what God's word has to say, and you let God's word be the final authority. But there are times where we have to do that, and there are times that can come up in our lives where we think, I don't want to do that because if I do, they won't like me. And I want them to like me. And what we are saying when those situations clearly call for you to say, you know what, 
The reason that you're going through this difficult time or experiencing the consequences that you are is because you're living contrary to God's word. And this is what God's word has to say about loving your wife or raising your children or living godly. But I don't want to do that because they may not like me. What you're saying is, is that you care more about yourself than you do about them. And that's a very selfish reason. Talk about being direct. But it's true, isn't it? And I think deep down inside we know that. And I'll tell you what, I don't always like to bring correction to people. I don't look forward, you know, I don't come into church going, ha, 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 I wonder who I get to get today. I, 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 I don't have that mindset. But there are times where it calls for it, and for us as well, because we're not helping them if we don't do that. So Paul says, listen, Titus, so they can be sound in the faith. You're going to have to deal with them directly. Give them God's word. In verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. To the pure, all things are pure. In other words, there are those who were abusing the grace of God. They said, we're pure, so anything that we do is pure. We can do whatever we want. Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. You're dead to sin. And then he goes on and he talks about the legalists and perhaps the Gnostics of Paul's day that taught and emphasized man-made religion, rules about eating and drinking and what you, know, you can touch and not touch and how you can be pure on the outside. And they emphasize so much of the external. And what God emphasizes is what? You know, the heart, doesn't he? And Jesus would confront the Pharisees that were so into the external and the rules and rituals regulations and rituals and the ceremonial washings and they were rebuking Jesus for you know why don't you do the proper cleansing before you eat and Jesus said don't you realize that it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you it's what comes out of your mouth because what comes out of your mouth shows the abundance of the heart in other words what is in your heart is going to show in your works it's going to be apparent in your life and Paul says that you know what I'm not judging their hearts but I can judge their works and by their works, I can see that they deny him. And they're disqualified for every good works. In other words, Timothy, don't you dare put them as leaders in the church. They're disqualified. The work of an elder is a good work, as Paul would write to Timothy. We can come and we can talk a good talk. We can use the spiritual terms. When we're around other Christians, we can sure make it seem like, oh boy, I'm spiritual and all this. But the bottom line is, where's your heart? Because God sees the heart for all of us. And so it's my prayer for us that we would always be ones that would be like David that said, Lord, you search me and try me. You know what's in my heart. And you see if there's any evil way and bring me in the way everlasting. And if you're here this morning, if there's anything in your heart, you know the Lord's dealing with you. You might think I'm okay because I go to church and, and I sing songs and, and I use Christian terms and I walk around saying amen, but in your heart you know something's not right. God sees it. And I pray that as we go to prayer right now that you would give it to the Lord. As the Lord convicts you and rebukes you. Why? Because he loves you. And he desires for you to be sound in the faith. And so, Lord, that's what we do. 
right now we just come to you with our hearts open to you. And I pray for any of us here this morning that hasn't received the gospel message that, Lord, they would do that right now. They don't know if they're going to heaven or not, that they can be sure as they receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, that Jesus died for them, took all their sins upon himself, bore their sins, died in place of them, for them, and they can come and receive salvation as they receive Jesus into their hearts. So if there's anybody here, anyone, that you're not sure, that you want to make sure that right where you're sitting, as you pray this prayer in faith from your heart, that Jesus, I believe that you are Lord. And I know I can't save myself, and I've fallen short. So forgive me. Come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me. I know that you're alive. Thank you for saving me. So I receive you as Lord and Savior of my life. You're born again. And then for all of us, I pray that our hearts would be right before the Lord. So if there's anything right now that you know that the Lord is dealing with you, why don't you just give it to the Lord right now? Just give it to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I can, and I can fool the pastor. I can fool other people, but I know I can't fool you. And you've been convicting me of this. I've been struggling with it, but I don't need to be held captive by sin. I don't have to continue to be bitter or angry or unforgiving or whatever it might be. But Lord, I give it to you this morning so I can be freed up. And Lord, I can continue pressing on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Father, everyone here that has that heart, I pray that you would touch them, minister to them, take that which they've been struggling with, dealing with, and Lord, that you would bring them into your love and grace. For all of us, Lord, I just pray that you would bless us as we go our way. We do lift up Jim to you, that you would be with him as he's at the hospital, and, and Lord, that you would just be with the doctors as if it is kidney stones, that they would pass quickly and that he would be able to go home and rest. Father, we just pray for anybody else here that needs a touch from you. Lord, that you would bring healing emotionally, spiritually, physically right now. And Lord, we thank you that you love us and you desire to meet our needs. Father, thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.